Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. I think I turned it on. You know how it is, pastors, right? I'm on. There we go. Good morning. I am seriously, I am so honored and thankful to be here uh, with you uh, at HCPN today. Uh, wherever I go around the country, um, and this is true, from Exponential West, Catalyst, wherever I go, uh, conferences I'm involved with people, and particularly when it gets to the conversation of church planting, um, HCPN comes up everywhere around this country. You guys really have made a name for yourself, so to speak, in the good work the collective work that's going on in the city, the heart of the of churches uh, to plant church, to expedite uh, the gospel in that way, to work together, the synergy that is here. And, and I've never had a chance to meet Chad, but you can't have a great network like this in a city without a great leader like Chad. So uh, I just want to say that, and we should probably give him a hand for all the hard work he does. And I'm sure like behind every great man is a great woman right over here. Micah, is that right? Mike is involved with that too, so we don't leave you out of that. I'm sure you're making Chad look good in everything you do, right? That's... But seriously, I'm very excited to be here, very thankful to have this opportunity to um, be with you and to dive into a few topics, a couple subjects in these two sessions, to just really try to expand your thinking, understanding, uh, help you with where you're at. Maybe some of you are kind of new to the dance. Maybe some of you are just completely entrenched in it. Uh, but I think there'll be a little of something for everyone. And, um, and so, again, very excited to be here. Let's have a word of prayer, if we could, and um, ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the privilege that we have to break away from our day job, so to speak, and, and gather as pastors and ministry leaders here in this space. Thank you for Chad and Micah and HCPN, the vision of churches here, not just to be about themselves, but about the, the city advancing the common good, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Gentile inclusion. Thank you for the awareness that this network has shown and, and having someone like myself come and, and talk about uh, such an important, intrinsic topic uh, today to the church, the advance of a credible witness. And uh, Father, we pray you'd stretch our minds, our hearts, uh, touch our emotions and, 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 and our wills as well as we leave this place today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, briefly, real quick, um, about the, uh, the two sessions. You came early, so you're getting, uh, uh, I guess, a... A deeper conversation, the second. The second is lunch, so it's a little more general. We'll be talking very specifically about multi-ethnic uh, churches, uh, core commitments, theology, uh, some promising practices. But in this first session, I wanted to talk to you about a concept called disruption. I actually have a book coming out on this in March 7th with Thomas Nelson. You can see the cover there. Dr. John Perkins, a very good friend of mine, a mentor, wrote the foreword. So I want to take you in um, multi-ethnic ministry and church is a part of this conversation, but I want to go up more to 30,000 feet. I figured you've come early, you want to think, think deeply and dive in. So we're going to do that uh, this morning. And, and let me just start with this. You're here in Houston, I guess, by Galveston, the ocean. I'm sure that this has been you at some point in your life, right? You're sitting by the ocean, you're enjoying the sun, the surf, the sand, the people that are there. You've got your beach chair, you know, got a cold one. I know it's Coke or something, right? So you've got a cold one there. Uh, that was a joke. All two of you got appreciate down there, Andre, okay? But uh, you're just enjoying yourself, enjoying the sun, surf, etc. and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, comes a rogue wave, right? I mean, it just comes in out of nowhere, rushes up your legs, up to your knees. You jump up, whoa, man, the water's cold. You didn't expect it. You weren't paying attention. You jump up, grab the chair. You feel the power of the surge of the wave. You have to start coming back, uh, you know, forward against your legs. And then, of course, it goes back. Your toes sink in the sand. You feel the power of the water. How many of you ever had that experience at a beach before? Yeah, most of you. I think most of us live long enough. You've probably been to the beach and had that, that go on. Well, you know what happens, right? So when that's over, you take your chair and you kind of adjust the sand a little bit and you put it back in, make sure it's stable. You sit back down, get back to your book, enjoying the surf, toes in the water, etc. And then what happens? Maybe 20, 25 minutes or so goes by and it happens all over again. Another rogue wave washes up. You go through the whole same process. You know what I'm talking about, right? If you stay in that spot long enough, the intervals of those waves will de they'll, they'll increase, right? So it'll go from every 30 minutes to every 20, and then every 15 and every 10. And not only will the, inter the intervals shorten, uh, but also the strength and the power of the wave will heighten, right? They'll just become more powerful, shorter intervals. And at some point, it will dawn on you what? The tide is coming in. And once it dawns on you that the tide is coming in, you will recognize that token adjustments of your chair minor adjustments of your chair is no longer enough to cut it. 
if you hope to remain at the water's edge, toes in the sand, enjoying the sun, surf, sounds of the day. In that moment, you will recognize that you have to physically pick up and move your chair to an entirely different spot on the beach. Again, if you hope to remain at the ocean's edge, enjoying your day, etc. right? And that is exactly where the American church finds itself today in matters, socio-political matters and issues largely affected by race, class, culture, gender, politics. That's where we find ourselves today. Token adjustments of the American church chair is no longer enough to cut it if we hope to advance a credible witness of God's love for all people in an increasingly diverse society. Token adjustments, hey, we got a black guy on staff, is no longer enough to cut it. Do you catch me? It's no longer enough to cut it if we hope to remain credible in presenting the gospel of God's love for all people in an increasingly diverse society. It is time, long past time, for the local church to move its chair in this regard. And that's what I want to talk to you about today in a concept called disruption. Disruption is actually a business term. How I, how I came on to this subject was about a year ago, I was speaking uh, in California to the Eco-Presbyterians. I went from there to Chicago to the Evangelical Covenant Church. And while I was in my hotel room, I was reading an article online on CNN by Mel Robbins, a CNN contributor. And it, she was talking about the concept uh, that's known in the business world as disruption. I'd never heard that before. How many have heard of that concept in the business world? Any of you? Disruption? I'd never heard about it, so I researched it. But she talked about in this article on disruption, she talked about what is known in the business world as disruptors. And she said a few things. For instance, disruptors create new ways of doing things that open new markets, doors, and possibilities. They don't innovate from within systems, but rather they turn systems upside down to affect systemic change. They break current molds. They change our way of thinking about those molds. And then they hand us the new rules for how things work. Disruptors. So as I read about it, you think about disruptive companies such as Facebook. Remember before 2005 or so? It's hard to believe Facebook's just been around like 10, 12 years, right? The iPhone since 2007. But for those of you who are old enough to remember AOL dial-up right back in the day, I remember that, 2000, 2001, we had AOL dial-up. The internet was largely created by the government to exchange information, but along came a guy named Mark Zuckerberg. And doing what he did and creating what he did, he disrupted the internet, and he turned it from an informational transfer system into the largest nation on the planet, if you think about it like that, right? It created, essentially, social media. So we don't just get information on the internet. We connect. We, we do social things in relationship building, etc. All over the internet, he disrupted the internet. Uber, as you all know, right? How many of you have used Uber in the last 30 to 60 days? Raise your hands. Raise them high. I mean, taxi cabs, you remember how it was and the whole deal? They completely disrupted how we hail a cab, if you will. Completely flipped the system upside down, gave us new rules. Amazon, you know how it is, right? Back in the day, people were afraid to shop online. Today, you go to a store locally, and you touch and feel the goods, and then you come home and order it on eBay or Amazon. Am I right? Amazon, they completely changed the way we shop, the way we think about retail. So disruptors that got around the curve, et cetera, uh, things that they break these molds, change the molds, hand us the new rules, you see that played out in companies like Facebook, Uber, and Amazon. And these companies are led then by what is called essentially disruptive leaders, right? And disruptive leaders are those, uh, she talked about, that, that see around the curve. I love that imagery, right? Think about walking down New York City and there's these high buildings, but disruptors can see what's coming. They don't just see what's in front of them, they see what's around the curb. They create their own platforms. By the way, we hear a lot about disruption today, particularly in politics and stuff. True disruption is not co-opting the platform and another. True disruption is creating your own platform. They simplify complexity, they articulate nuance, and ultimately, they say what needs to be said, and they do what needs to be done before others even know something needs to be said or how it needs to be done. Disruptive companies led by disruptive leaders. And as I was reflecting on that article in my hotel room in Chicago uh, right about a year ago, it dawned on me that we have a disruptive God. That we have a disruptive God. Think about it. He disrupted darkness and gave us light. He disrupted the law and gave us faith. Disrupted sin, gave us salvation. Disrupted death, gave us life. Disrupted time and gave us eternity. 
And I began to realize that if we, in fact, have a disruptive God, surely he expects the church, and I'm talking specifically about the local church, like this church right here, not just the universal or eternal church, this church right here, surely if we have a disruptive bridegroom, surely he expects the bride to be disruptive as well. Surely he expects that. Water rises to its own level. Maybe you know that from marriage counseling, right? You pour a glass of water. You don't have, like, on this side of the cup, it's not here and the other side's here. Water rises to its own level. It does so in marriage. It should do so in the church. We have a disruptive God. We, therefore, the local church, the bride of Christ, we, his people, should be disruptive as well. As you know, Jesus taught us to pray, right? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. So let me ask you a question. If the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, then why on earth is the local church? If Christ taught us to pray that what's going on, and his expectation is what's going on up there should be going on down here, and we know the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, for many reasons, fast forward to Revelation 7, 9, right? Every nation, tribe, people, and tongue in the same room, walking, working, worshiping God, essentially together as one for all of eternity. That's the intended future. That's our destination. And if Christ said what's going on up there should be going on down here, you have to ask yourself the question and at some point address it if you're going to be disruptive. If the kingdom of heaven is not segregated, why on earth is the local church? Today, 86.3% of churches throughout the United States fail to have at least 20% diversity in their attending membership. They're segregated by race, and I would add class as well. Churches are 10 times more segregated than the neighborhoods they're in and 20 times more segregated than nearby public schools. Surely it breaks the heart of God, don't you think, that so many, the vast majority of our churches throughout this country are segregated by race and class and that little has changed in the now more than 100 years since it was first observed that 11 o'clock on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week. Brothers and sisters, it should not be so, amen? It should not be so. But more than bemoaning that fact from an emotional level, uh, the systemic segregation of the local church in America today is having an adverse effect on our ability to advance a credible witness of God's love for all people in an increasingly diverse society. It's having an adverse effect. My good friend Dave Olson with the Evangelical Covenant Church uh, did a study of over 200,000 churches uh, around 2010 uh, in this country in the American Church Research Project. And, uh, and, and among other things, here's what he found. Between 1990 and 2009, at a time in American history when more than 56 million people were added to the roles of America through birth or legal immigration, more than 56 million became legal citizens of this country in a 20-year span between 1990 and 2009. Do you know how many people became active members of a local church? Only 446,540 people, less than 1%. Look at me. No one is listening. No one is listening. And I contend the primary reason that this country is not listening is because we preach a gospel of God's love for all people from otherwise systemically segregated churches, and it undermines the very credibility of our witness. Indeed, an increasingly diverse and cynical society is no longer finding credible a message of God's love for all people, again, because we preach it, by and large, from segregated pulpits and pews. And let me give you a visual of what that looks like. When I talk about how the systemic segregation of the church is undermining our credibility, let me give you an example in real time of what that looks and feels like. Uh, I planted Mosaic Church in Little Rock in 2001. By 2003, we had rented an 80,000-square-foot Walmart, a former Walmart. It had been dark in, our, uh, uh, dark in our area, in our community, for over eight years. Uh, what an amazing story. Can you imagine that, church planners? I got an 80,000-square-foot former Walmart. Guess how much I paid? Ten cents a square foot. Can you believe that? It's like 650 bucks a month or so for 80,000 square feet. That all sounds really great, and it was. It's a total miracle story, but the first thing we had to do was hire animal trappers to trap all the animals that were living in that place, right? I mean, the cats and the possum and the skunk. I mean, they were everywhere, right? Our people lived with flea bites for six months. on the, We couldn't get rid of the fleas in this place, right? It was just horrid. That's why we got it 
about. In fact, the roof leaked so bad, it was like Niagara Falls. We didn't have to pay rent for 18 months. So we had free for all this space. But we went in like ants cleaned the place up, right? We used to have, uh, bring your own chair. That's how you came to church. We didn't have chairs in the day. And uh, people would bring their own chairs. I always remember the pregnant woman down in the front with the double wide, two big gulps sitting right there, you know, feet propped up. But we're in this old Walmart, and, and, and kind of like this, not, not as nice or as expansive, but uh, that Walmart had a glass front. And it's next to a Kroger grocery store. In fact, it's next to a pawn shop and a check cashing place and a, a couple bars and, and uh, head shops and sex shops. And that's why people like going to Mosaic. You can get gas in your car, go to the pawn shop, check your, get your check cash, you know, come worship God, get some groceries, all in the same spot. So... On this one particular Sunday morning in the early days of our church in that space, a couple of our women next, went next door to the Kroger, and they invited a woman over to church, and she happened to be an African-American woman. And so when she got to the church, she got to the glass front, as you can imagine, looking back there. When she got to the front of the church, here's what she did. So what do you think she is doing? Every person of color in this room knows exactly what she was doing, Right? She's looking inside to see if there's anyone in there like me. Is there anyone like me? Now, let's imagine before. By the way, I'm, I'm white, full disclosure. I have a Hispanic last name. I was born out of wedlock, 1961. I was born to an Italian and a Russian Jew uh, on my father's side. My mother was white as white can be. Uh, 1961, only 6% of kids were without fathers in this country. I was a latchkey kid before that was even a term that was coined out of the shoestring and the key. I sold Avon on the streets at seven. I worked, graduated from there to sell or to uh, wash dishes at the Phoenix Playboy Club when I was 13 and just been up since then, you know. So, uh, but I grew up in those kind of conditions. And my point is this. I have a Hispanic last name. People think I'm Hispanic. They really don't know what I am. I just tell it, you know, I'm American mutt, so whatever helps your demographics, you know, just check off the box. But full disclosure, I'm white. And for 18 years, I served in largely white churches before planting Mosaic 16 years ago. And so what if this woman with her face against the glass looks inside and she sees the white pastor? God loves everyone. God loves everyone. And then she looks and sees the worship team behind him, this guy playing on a guitar. God loves everyone. God loves everyone. And then she looks over on the wall and there's a map of the world on a cork board and it's got this big map. And in that map are all these little pins with pictures of people and little flags of the countries that this church sends its money and its men and women, mankind, men and women and its money overseas they will cross an ocean to tell people about God's love but she says I've never seen these people across the street what could she conclude well I guess the gospel you're talking about God's love for all people is is the gospel and the God of the white people because I don't see any of my people in there and what is any different about that today than two or three thousand years ago when the Hittites had their gods and the Egyptians had their gods, and the Phoenicians had their gods, and we Jews have our God. There's no difference in terms of the translation, the interpretation, the feel of our segregated churches from the people in the community. Now you say, now come on, Mark, God and the church is much bigger than just this church or your church. I mean, think about the church of Houston. So all the, the different little churches that make up the capital C church in Houston. And when God looks down on the church in Houston, he sees the beauty and the, uh, the wonder of his diversity, his diverse kingdom, etc. So when God looks down on the church of Houston, it's all diverse. I mean, what's the big deal? And I'm like, hey, that's totally fine. Status quo, well and good, if you're trying to evangelize Jesus. Y'all trying to save Jesus in here? Are you trying to, right, tell Jesus about Jesus? Because if, 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 if that's the goal, then we're doing just fine, status quo. But obviously, that's not our goal. We're not trying to reach Jesus with the gospel. We're trying to reach the woman with her face up against the glass. And on that score, we fail. On that score, we fail because we undermine the very credibility of the gospel, the very credibility of our witness because we preach it and proclaim it from segregated pulpits and pews. Sometimes I speak in groups like this. In fact, some of you might be Acts 29. I remember I was in Acts 29 conference speaking on this, and somebody in the Q&A stood up and said, isn't the gospel enough? What about all this multi-ethnic stuff? And Isn't the gospel enough? Yeah, if you preach the whole gospel, it would be. See what I'm saying? It's not the gospel's fault. It's our fault. We don't understand it fully, and we don't preach it in totality. In fact, I may get there today if you're get a little bit further in the notes, but you probably don't even realize there's two Gospels in the book of Romans, did you? Do you know that? Two Gospels in the book of Romans. Maybe I'll show you that later on this afternoon. Well, all that's to say is that the systemic segregation of the local church is unintentionally undermining the very credibility of our witness 
in an increasingly diverse and cynical society. And that must be disrupted. Completely turned around, flipped up on its head. We have to have people who see around the curve, who see the harm that segregated churches are doing to the advance of a credible witness. We have to disrupt that system and hand people the new rules for how things work. Because we are dead in the water. And no one is listening. The fact is, and we'll get into this in the second session, uh, the New Testament church was multi-ethnic. Every church in the New Testament outside of Jerusalem was what we would call today a multi-ethnic church in which Jews and Gentiles, so Jews are Jews and Gentiles are everybody else, right? Along with men and women, rich and poor, they walk, they work, they worship God together as one in local churches, and this more than their words and their theology is what carried that message and made it credible. In fact, in Matthew 5, 16, you remember that verse, right? Let your light so shine that they hear your good words and they glorify, that they hear your good theology. Remember that verse? Oh, maybe I got it wrong. I think it said that they see your good works. It wasn't so much the words of the gospel or, or their presentation in terms of theology. It's that they embrace the entire gospel. Not only the gospel of Jesus Christ, the preaching and proclamation of atonement through faith, not works, but Paul's gospel of Gentile inclusion, as I referred to earlier in Romans 16, Ephesians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 1. The New Testament was multi-ethnic. Again, we'll get into this more in the second session, but just three quick bullet points. Christ envisioned the multi-ethnic church on the night before he died, John chapter 17. Then Luke describes it in action at a place called Antioch, which, by the way, the model church of the New Testament, I'm not sure you, you know, I don't, I don't want to, well, maybe I do want to disrupt your thinking. Here's the deal. The model church in the New Testament is not Jerusalem. It's Antioch. In fact, if I go to one more conference and I hear a well-known pastor get up on the stage and admonish us that we've got to be Acts 2 churches, I think I'm going to throw up. You are not a fully mature biblical church until you're at least to Acts 11, Acts 13, Acts 16. Acts 2 is a starting point. It is not the stopping point. And you have to understand, Luke is a disciple of Paul. Paul is the champion of the gospel of Gentile inclusion. Luke's primary source is Paul. The book of Acts, he's the Donald Miller of the day. Did you know that? He tells the story of Jesus in the gospel of Luke, and he tells the story of the church in the book of Acts. And so Acts 1.8 picks it up with Matthew 28. It's like, a, it's like a symphony, right? The first note is played, Acts 1.8. And then you add another instrument or two in Acts 2, and you go on. And I wish I had time to exegete that. Uh, with you, but the whole point is that Luke is playing a symphony. It's, it's a crescendo that's going on. Acts 2 is a starting point, not a stopping point. Well, I wish I had time to tell you the critiques that are embedded in Luke's commentary on Acts 2, right? You remember that, Koinonia, and how we champion Koinonia? Hey, they're all selling their goods, laying the stuff at the apostles' feet and everything, and all that's really well and good. In Acts 2.42, the apostles teaching, breaking bread, prayer fellowship, all that stuff is well and good. Acts 47, praising God, Worshiping in the temple from day to day. Hey, I get it. All of it's good. Except if you know that Luke is a disciple of Paul and you know that Paul champions a Gentile inclusion of the church, then you would see the commentary when he says at the end of Koinonia, you would see the critique. He says, and there was not a needy person among them. You know what that's called? Internally focused. If 3,000 people joined your church tomorrow, you'd be freaking out. Think about it. We all want explosive growth. Church planning, how fast can you get to two, 300? How fast can you be sustainable? How big can you get? How quick can you get there? This is the entire standard of measure, metrics for the American church. Size, right? Numbers, dollars, and buildings, and the speed at which that occurs. I'm telling you, if 3,000 people joined my church tomorrow, we would be freaking out. We don't have enough nursery beds. We don't have enough parking. We don't have enough staff. Think about trying to enfold not only 3,000 people, but 3,000 new converts into one church in one day. And that was just the first day. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why the very people Jesus looked in the eye and said, go, never went? We preach Matthew 28 all the time. Those guys didn't go. Sure, they went later in life, and they made a few short-term mission trips, and some, by tradition, end up in different cities, like Peter traditionally executed in Rome. But by and large, in their earthly ministry, they didn't go, they stayed. Have you ever asked yourself the question, why? Here's the principle explosive growth more often than not leads to internal focus. Explosive growth more often than not leads to internal focus. I'm not blaming them. Hindsight's 20-20. If I'd been them, same thing. 
Because if 3,000 people join, you've got to get your hands around this thing. You've got to figure it out. You've got to break it down and get systems. And that's just day one, right? Explosive growth leads to internal focus. And what is the American church chasing? Explosive growth. Oops, sorry. Can you grab that for me, please? Size, numbers, dollars, buildings. Hey, if that's the metric of success, Jesus was a horrible failure. I mean, maybe on a good day he had 70 people. And sure, he did a couple big events. I mean, everybody wants a Burger King, right? You know, so he'd throw a big party, invite the city, free burgers, everybody comes. People want a Burger King, they don't want the King of Kings. 70 people on a good day. Maybe 24, 12, maybe sometimes three. If it was about size and speed, Jesus was a horrible failure. Was Jesus a horrible failure? Then maybe we need to disrupt our thinking about what true effectiveness is and what is the North Star in terms of success in church planning, growth, and development. Well, again, I'm getting off the subject. By the way, when you get up to Acts 11, uh, without that, the the critique there, in Acts 11, first time that people went and spoke intentionally, not just to Jews as they did in Jerusalem at Pentecost, but they spoke to Jews and Gentiles in the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Again, large numbers come to Christ, but this time it's a different effect because those large numbers were not homogeneous or homogenous, but they were diverse people, Jews and Gentiles. And twice you see that in terms of evangelism, or once in the context of discipleship at Antioch, Paul is brought by Barnabas there, sets up shop, teaching, the gospel goes forth to the known world. Think about it. Which church is the first church in the New Testament to send missionaries to the world intentionally? Not Jerusalem, Antioch. God said, go in Jerusalem. They didn't go, so God brought persecution and forced them out with the message. But at Antioch, they willingly sent their best people. It's like you're at Saddleback, and they say, Rick, we got it. Go. You know? We don't need you. Go. They sent their best people on mission intentionally out of Antioch. Which is the first church to take up a collection for the poor? Not Jerusalem, Antioch. Agabus comes to Antioch, Acts 11, right? Remember that? There's going to be a famine. And they said, oh my gosh, let's take up a collection for the poor saints in Jerusalem. And where were believers first called Christians? Not in Jerusalem, Antioch. See, Antioch is the model church. Here's the point, by the way. When your church is healthy and multi-ethnic, mission isn't a program, it's who you are. Mission isn't a program, it's who you are. It flows organically. That's why when you have a healthy, diverse environment, you think about the other, like Paul had to admonish the church of Philippi, don't just think about your own, right? Not your own interests, but the interests of others. That happens in a multi-ethnic church quite naturally because it's intrinsic to the DNA. When you are a church of the other, you care for the other. It's not programmatic, it's who you are. Well, I'm preaching here, but invasion by Christ described by Luke at Antioch and ultimately prescribed by the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians. So I probably dove a little too deep. We'll maybe get back to there uh, here in the second session as we get a little deeper into the core commitments and best practices of building healthy, multi-ethnic churches. But I just simply leave it here to ask you this question or to make this statement. While the American church continues to fawn over all things missional, the single greatest divide and polarizing issue of our time is over all things racial. And we have no credibility on the single greatest issue of our time. The single greatest thing that divides us is race in America. And we have no credibility because of the systemic segregation of our churches. When was the last time there's, a, there, there's some upsetting thing? I mean, uh, like going back a couple of years to Ferguson or, or even in the election currently that, that just happened with Trump and Hillary and the whole deal and, and, and race, class, culture, gender. I mean, we're fighting on every front, right? Even on whether to stand, sit, or kneel during the playing of a national anthem. At everywhere we're at odds, and it's all rooted in race and culture and historic divides and pain and polarization. And when was the last time after some event like this Uh, Again, take Ferguson two years ago. And you turn on CNN, you turn on MSNBC, and you turn on Fox News, and they have panels. And they say, what do you think about that? What's going on? And they ask all the people. And and some are media types. And some are sports figures. And some are actors and actresses. And some are musicians. And some are professors from school. And then you turn and you say, where is the pastor? Where is the church? Where is the evangelical pastor? We aren't even invited. We don't have a seat at the table on the single greatest issue of our time due to the systemic segregation of the church, which undermines our credibility in that space. We don't even have a seat at the table. The fact is, this should be the church's finest hour. This should be our finest hour. Into this pain and the polarization of this community, we have the answer. 
We have the Prince of Peace. We have agape love. We got what this world is looking for, faith, peace, hope. We got all that and love. It should be our finest hour where this world looks into our local churches and sees us as they were in the first century, walking, working, worshiping God together as one beyond the distinctions of this world that so often and painfully and otherwise divide. They should see us living beyond tolerance in agape love, unconditional love for one another, whereby we lift up Jesus in our midst so he can draw what? All people to himself. By the word, you know, in Koine Greek, you know what the word all means? All. That's what, I, that's what it means. It means all. They should see us bringing peace or advancing peace in our communities, not only on the spiritual front, but social justice and economic reform and development and empowerment to local communities, particularly those that are underserved and resor- uh, under-resourced. And they should see us advancing measurable community transformation, real results beyond rhetoric, for the sake of the gospel and the glory of God. That's what the world should see. We have the answer, and we should be disruptive. Changing all of this tension, changing it, bringing peace, faith, hope, and love to the world. But here's the deal. The American church, and I'm speaking specifically not only macro, collective, but local churches in America today, due to their systemic segregation, where we should be disruptive, we, in fact, have been disrupted. Pulled off mission and message and credibility due to the systemic segregation of our church. We have, again, virtually no credibility on the single greatest issue and polarizing pain of our time. Therefore, when we do try to speak, something happens like Ferguson or Black Lives Matter or whatever, some type of social uh, matter rises to the top, some type of injustice, and there's an argument, there's pain and polarization. When the church or the pastors or the leaders, when we do try to speak, it's always after the fact. It's not ahead of it. We're not ahead of the curve. We're behind it. We're at the back of the line trying to shout answers that are unbelievable. They're not credible. And no one is listening, we saw in the stats. So when we do speak, our words are often spoken too late, only after problematic situations arise, that is, those of real perceived uh, injustice and receive widespread attention. Therefore, our words ring hollow. They ring inauthentic. They ring self-serving, whether they're spoken from the pulpit, on the streets, or through social media. And let me ask you a question. Is this not what it means to have become noisy gongs and clanging cymbals? Now, how many of you as pastors or yourselves have said this, or uh, maybe you've heard another pastor say, we're going to take this city for Christ. We're going to come together. We're going to take this city for Christ. We're going to change this community. for How many of you have ever said that or heard it said? Would you just humor me and raise your hands? Most of us have either said it or have heard someone else say it. So now let me ask you a follow-up. Have you ever seen it happen? Have you ever seen it happen? In all the last four years I've been sharing this message uh, with people, I've asked those same two questions, and the response is always the same. All the hands go up at first, and virtually, I've only had two hands go up in four years on the second question, and the most response is people chuckle. Because what we have is rhetoric and not results when it comes to taking a city for Christ, taking a community. We got lots of rhetoric, and I don't mean people don't mean well, right? I mean, I know we really do want to take a city for Christ. We do want to change a community. But, so I'm not, I'm not blaming the rhetoric. I'm saying it's rhetoric because it so often fails to achieve real measurable results. And I began to ponder that in my own church uh, many years ago. Why is it that our rhetoric in this space of trying to take a city for Christ so often fails to produce measurable results? And, and there may be many ways, but I, I, I thought about three particularly. And I'll share them with you right now in the form of a question. Here's the first one is that we limit the gospel. We limit the gospel. The word gospel, and we'll maybe talk about this in the second session, but the word gospel simply means good news. We speak and teach and think as if it only means one thing, that is redemption, atonement, in Christ. But the word is actually neutral. It just means good news. If you were drowning in the ocean and I pulled you out, brother, that's gospel to you, Andre. That's good news. I just saved you. So we upload this term with spiritual meaning, as we should, but it's not 
merely limited to spiritual need. And particularly when we talk about limiting the gospel here, I'm talking about our preaching of the gospel to see souls saved. But why don't we advance the common good and see entire communities saved? Why don't we think like that when we talk about the gospel? It's always about the individual being saved. And I get it. I'm all about that. I want to see souls saved. That's what we're here for. John 17, 2 and 3, right? Bringing the kingdom of God to earth. And so people come to know Christ and find their way to heaven. I get all that. I'm about all that. I champion all that. I don't put any of that down. But I'm saying it's a limited gospel. And in our world today, they got to see something more than what you believe with your lips and in your heart. They got to see it in action. And so we limit the gospel to saving souls, but we should be thinking about saving communities. And what does it mean to advance the common good in in ways that brings faith, peace, hope, and love, in a way that does demonstrate good works so that some will be saved? See, what does that mean? What does it mean that the nation of Israel is saved? You ever ask yourself that question? Man, I, I got a doctorate in exegesis, and I still don't know what that means. Trying to figure that out all these years, right? What does that mean? Does that mean every single person who's Jew throughout history, they get saved? Or is God like kind of like he gives them a pass and they get saved? Like what exactly is going on? But here's the point. A collective nation gets saved. But we just talk about individuals being saved. We should be thinking collectively, not just individually. What does it mean to save a community? And what does it mean to advance good works in such a way they see them We shine a light on who Jesus is, and they're drawn to that message, to those works. We limit the gospel. Secondly, we trust in a miracle motif. In other words, if everyone gets saved, life is good. If everyone would just get saved, everything would be fine. If everybody would be Christian. But I'm here to tell you, and you probably know, just because people get saved doesn't mean there's there's pay equity between men and women. It doesn't mean there's crosswalks in the street so your African-Americans at night don't get hit because they're dark and they got dark clothes on and county, state, and city can't agree on who's going to pay for crosswalks and you lose church members because people get killed. It's happened to me. Can't get the county, state, and city to put crosswalks in the street. Doesn't mean that outside forces don't come into your community and shut down two elementary schools to balance the budget, right? But you say, well, why don't they shut down an elementary school west of 430 in the suburbs? No, they want to shut down in the urban community. That's injustice. And just the fact that everybody gets saved doesn't change those decisions automatically. And, but we think like that in our approach to ministry and how we, we do. It's, it's all about seeing souls saved and making disciples. And I'm all about that. But it's a limited gospel because it doesn't necessarily save the community. And just because everybody gets saved doesn't mean life is good. And the more life is good for more people in the name of Christ, the more people will be drawn and attracted to our witness. It's not the words in our day, it's our works. That is the telling witness. We limit the gospel, we trust in a miracle motif, and of course we speak in vague generalities. No one is going to take Houston for Christ. I hate to burst your bubble, this city will not be taken for The only person going to take Houston for Christ is Christ himself. But you know what you can take in your church? You can take an apartment complex. You can take a five-block square radius. You can take a zip code. Identifying the specific target area, you know, as I said, not the target people. You catch that, church planners? The target area. And knowing what you can realistically get your hands around to advance spiritual, social, and financial disruption to bring real hope and real change to communities for the sake of the gospel. We got to stop talking in vague generalities and identify what is the target community that we live, love, and serve within. Specifics, not generalities. By the way, as you know, and perhaps some of you are part of denominations or networks that promote church planting uh, for literally 40 to 50 years in this country, if you're a church planter and you go to a denomination or network, say, I want to plant a church, I'm looking to plant a church, etc., what's the first question you're asked? What's the first question? Where? All right, I'll give it to you. What's the second question? Who's your target audience? It's not a biblical question. It's not a biblical question. There's not one place in the New Testament where they target a people group to plant, grow, or develop a church. Not one. It's not a biblical question. You can target a people group in a homogeneous way 
by the way, the homogeneous unit principle, so misinterpreted, misapplied since Peter Wagner got involved in 1972. That's another story. You can target a people group for evangelism, discipleship, and leadership development. Who did that? Jesus. But in his humanity, he never planted a church. Think about it. And once Pentecost comes, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. Every church outside of Jerusalem, we already talked about that, is planted, grown, and developed, not targeting a people group, but targeting a general area in which diverse people live. So once you cross the line from evangelism, discipleship, and leadership development to we're a church, you have no biblical license, freedom, or mandate to plant, grow, or develop a church focused on a single people group. It does not exist in the Bible. But we've been governed by that for 50 years. And what that did back when Donald McGavern, it wasn't his fault, he was a multi-ethnic guy, believe it or not. I wrote an ebook on that subject and refined, uh, researched his history. But with Peter Wagner in 72 and others, it gave every white pastor in America what they thought was a biblical excuse to plant, grow, and develop churches that would grow real big and real fast in areas they wanted to live in. And where have we been led now 50 years later? To systemically segregated churches that undermine the very credibility of our witness in an increasingly diverse society. I'm not saying they did it in a bad way. People want to reach the world. They want to share the gospel. They want to see people saved. And the church, I'm all about, I see, I get all that. But the point is it had an unintended consequence. And if it was about speed and size, Jesus was a failure. And so he wasn't. But we have to keep, we have to be able to see around the curve before we make these decisions. And so those who've gone before us have put us in this bind now of trying to disrupt the American church, our thinking, our leadership, our structures, our approach to right the wrong of systemic segregation of the church. And by the way, there is absolutely no hope for dismantling systemic segregation in society until it's first dismantled in the local church. None. No hope of dismantling systemic segregation in society until it's first dismantled in the church. Well, all this takes us to a place of rethinking how we do business. That it's not just about promoting a spiritual message, but a social one and a financial one, like a three-legged stool. How do we get beyond rhetoric to results in terms of advancing the common good, blessing the city, seeing people come to Christ, promote the greater unity of the body in a city, and ultimately fulfilling the Great Commission. We can no longer operate on spiritual fronts alone. We have to be operating simultaneously on spiritual, social, and economic fronts in specific communities to advance good works so the light is shown on Jesus and we cast a credible and attractive message of God's love in an increasingly diverse society. Well, breaking this down, essentially, what does this mean? First, we need to disrupt the church. We'll talk more about that in the second hour, but this is ultimately to provide a credible witness of God's love for all people. We need to establish healthy, multi-ethnic, and economically diverse churches, get away from the systemic segregation, and in these churches model reconciliation, uh, churches that will reflect their communities and promote peace. In fact, what a, you know, for, for anyone who would say we're going to take our community for Christ, here's the first question. How in the world do you expect to take your community for Christ if, in fact, your church doesn't reflect that community? I mean, it's such a basic question, but we just gloss over that. So creating multi-ethnic, healthy multi-ethnic, economically diverse churches, and by the way, let me just be really clear, for the sake of the gospel, I'm not here promoting this vision because Barack Obama is biracial and somehow represents the changing face of America. I'm not promoting this vision because of changing demographics, some that even Chad cited about the diversity of the city of Houston. Uh, in fact, in America today, one in two children under the age of five are non-white. By 2018, one in two children under the age of 18 will not be white. Uh, 43% of millennials, roughly 19 to 36 at the moment, about 40, 43% of that generation is non-white. And by 2042, one in two people in this country will not be white. In 1960, one in 20 marriages were interracial. Today, it's one in seven likely to be one in three in the next 10 to 15 years. And all of that is informing the church in this and bringing the church this message. But here's the deal. While all that's well and good, that's not why I'm here talking about disrupting the church and, and changing the way we do business. And I'm certainly not here because Rodney King once asked us all to get along. I'm here promoting this message because it is biblical, it is right, and it is the hope of the gospel for the sake of the gospel in an increasingly diverse and cynical society. 
It's not so much about racial reconciliation, although that's a wonderful byproduct of building healthy multi-ethnic churches, but ultimately it's about reconciling individual hearts to God through faith in Christ, and secondly, reconciling the people of a local church to the practices and the principles of the first century church in which diverse men and women walked, worked, and worshiped God together as one. That's the heart and soul of this message. Not political correctness, but biblical correctness. Not because it's optional, it's biblical. Not because it's nice, it's necessary to advance a credible word in our day and time. So that first leg of the stool, if you're going to actually advance real community transformation beyond rhetoric to results for the sake of the gospel along the lines of Matthew 5.16, we can't just preach Jesus and, and as if people just get saved. That's a part of it. That's foundational. But there's so much more. We have to build healthy, multi-ethnic, and economically diverse churches that reflect God's love for all people in real and tangible ways in a local community. So the people of the community, when they put their face to the glass, they realize, hey, my people are there too. And this is the God of all people, God of the nations, right? Not only that, though, then we have to disrupt our witness. And disrupting witness is to advance compassion, justice, mercy, and opportunity beyond just that spiritual leg, if you will, thinking about it. Now, I know that uh, if you're particular types in this room, there's always different folks in a room like this, but you know, you've got your gospel guys. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Isn't the gospel enough in the gospel? And you ask those people, hey, I'm all about the gospel, but where's justice in your equation? And then you go to other environments, and it's all justice, 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 and marching in the streets, and all the ju- And you say, where's Jesus? Because I don't, you see what I'm saying? American church is so compartmentalized on all this stuff. You understand what I'm saying? But, and I may have a slide for this later, but in case I don't, write this down. It is long past time for us to recognize that lament corporate repentance, reconciliation, and justice, these things are not peripheral to the gospel. They are intrinsic to the gospel. Lament, corporate repentance, reconciliation, and justice, these things are not peripheral to the gospel. They're not to be compartmentalized. They are intrinsic to the gospel. The Apostle Paul never, ever, 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 ever preached the gospel of Jesus Christ without simultaneously preaching the gospel of Gentile inclusion, ever. Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of that capital G gospel. Why? Power of salvation to everyone who believes, Jews and Gentiles alike. Let me explain it to you. Chapter one, boy, those dirty, rotten Gentiles, they get themselves in so much mess. They are so bad. They are so wicked. 25 times he uses the word they or them from chapter 1, verse 18 to the end of chapter, referring to the sins of the Gentiles. And Jews and Gentiles in the room, by the way, hearing this letter, and if you're a Jew in your heart, you go, you tell them, Paul. You give it to them, Paul. Chapter 2, verse 1, but you. But you. And he flips the table on the Jews in the room, and 30 times in chapter 2, he uses the word you to refer to the sins of the Jews. That's why he says in chapter 3, see, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You think you're saved because of your blood? You think you're saved because of works of human hands and circumcision? Look, there wasn't even a thing called Jew before Abram, right? And then he explains that gospel we know and love, 5 through 8 and 9. He explains that. But listen, if you think Paul wrote the book of Romans to explain the gospel, you don't know Paul, and you don't know the book of Romans. That's not why he wrote it. He wrote it to explain the gospel of Gentile inclusion, which is rooted in that gospel, which is why he gets into 10, and he tells the Jews, your zeal is misplaced. The American church's zeal is misplaced. We're all about winning souls, but we're dying. Communities are we're being lost and die, and souls are in those communities. Our zeal is misplaced. And he talks about gifts and 12, etc. and he gets to Romans 16, 25. And so he says, and now may God establish you, multi-ethnic church at Rome, by my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. And it's a coordinating conjunction, two separate but equal ideas. What the heck is this my gospel stuff? What if I came today, oh, Mark DeMond, I'm so glad to have him. I'm so glad to be here. I'm here to preach my gospel. What would you think? That's what Paul did in the book of Romans. He preached his gospel like he did in Colossians and Galatians and Ephesians chapter 3. His gospel, Ephesians 3, 6, is the mystery revealed in the latter days, Ephesians 3, 2 through 6, and specifically verse 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs with the Jews that the Gentiles are to be included in this capital G gospel. They're to be included in the kingdom of God, and they are to be included in the local church without distinction. This is the gospel of Paul. 
the gospel of Gentile inclusion. And he never preaches the capital G gospel without preaching the little g gospel of Gentile or other inclusion. Never does it. And he never starts a church for a single people group. This is the gospel of Paul. Ultimately, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So lament, corporate repentance, reconciliation, these aren't peripheral to the gospel. They're intrinsic to the gospel. And it's long past time we understand that because people are being lost to Christ because we don't get that right. Now, in terms of disrupting your witness, one of the ways that I advocate for this is by having churches create umbrella nonprofits. I'm certainly not the first guy to talk about developing nonprofits, etc., but not exporting justice and mercy and compassion to relegating it to others in the community and or seeing it as something peripheral to your ministry at arm's length. You create an umbrella nonprofit. It's a sister within the same church. You leverage property, facilities, assets to advance justice, mercy, compassion, and hope. Why an umbrella nonprofit? Well, first of all, to zero in on a specific community. Ministries start typically because people are passionate about something. So somebody comes up and they go, hey, I want to run a basketball league. I want to run a chess club. I want to work with foster care. And you go, oh, great. And and, then people will talk about, yeah, we're doing this ministry, but it's really one person in the church doing that ministry. And that's certainly good. Hey, that's that's great. All for that. But when churches invest in those ministries, they can only, they only have so much budget, right? And so, and there's tons of nonprofits. A city like Houston, you got so many good works, so many nonprofits, so many people. And you know, as pastors, what are they all coming at you for? Money and men, right? Money and men, men, men and women. They need our resources. They want us to get involved. But we can only be involved in so many things. And so you send 100 bucks over here and a couple people over there. And all around the city, there's a shotgun effect from local churches, I'm imagining. I don't know Houston very well. But in typical cities, it's like that in shotgun. And all that stuff's important and all of it's good. But you ask yourself the question, is there a better way? Is there a better way? And when you strategically focus in a specific community and you pour your resources and your men and your women and you get it under an umbrella nonprofit so you can fast track people to nonprofit status, create all these programs that contract grants and get investment from other churches and on and on I could go, then you can aggregate good in a specific location. You can feed people, and the very people you're feeding, you have their children in a chess club, and the girls that are getting pregnant who are part of those families you're working with in a teen mops program, and on and on I could go about that, but it's all right there, and all the directors of the programs know each other, and they know the people of the community, and the community starts seeing you as their pastor, and you don't see yourself as a pastor of a church. You see yourself as pastoring a community. And this can happen when you work smart by creating umbrella nonprofit, an umbrella nonprofit as a sister ministry within your church, side by side, separate board, etc. Just real quickly on an umbrella nonprofit, a couple of things about strategic development. The idea is, is to create that synergy that we talked about, launch people quickly into nonprofit status, get those grants, church partnerships, etc. And, and ultimately, it's about working smart in this space so that, in, like in Act 6, the spiritual side stays focused on the spiritual, but justice is a big part of it. They're not separate. They're sisters in the same house. But you can get that. For instance, in our, uh, we have a, uh, our umbrella nonprofit's called Vine and Village. Why it's called an umbrella nonprofit is because we have 10 programs currently in the nonprofit. Each one of those could be their own nonprofit. But think about it. If you had 10 nonprofits, that's 10 boards. That's 10 offices. That's 10 copiers. That's 10 phone systems. That's 10 tax returns. See what I'm saying? And if you try to be a nonprofit today, it takes anywhere from 6 to 12 months to become a nonprofit Etc. But if you come to our board on the nonprofit side and you say, hey, I want to run a basketball league, we stamp approval. You walk out, you're a nonprofit. You can fast track people to nonprofit status. You can get grants. One of our programs that works with kids who age out of foster care got an $800,000 government grant three years ago, funds the whole program for five years. Uh, we get micro grants, 5000 25 We would never get that money if all that was under the church. Do you understand? We get churches to invest in the good work that we're doing. We have 30 community partners, Baptist Health and other churches, and they send checks. But they wouldn't send a check to the church. Isn't that sad? Like, we really don't like that. I don't know why that is, but it is. Isn't it true? Like, churches don't really want to send money to another church. But they'll send it to your nonprofit. And they'll get involved with your nonprofit so you can get other churches involved. And somehow that feels better to us. And we can get grants we wouldn't otherwise have. And we could expand our ministries because they're not dependent on the budget of the church. And it's smart. I, in terms of the grant, we got a $25,000 grant about a year and a half ago from the state. And, and, and we got this grant to our nonprofit and our food distribution. We have the largest food distribution in the city of Little Rock. And we got this $25,000 grant. And it was to, it was, the grant was to buy tables and chairs and push carts to help as we set up food once a week. For the, we feed 55% of our community, by the way. 
We define our communities as zip codes, 32,500 people. 55% get about four days of food from us that supplements 29.5% of poverty in our community, 2,750 homes in poverty, et cetera. It supplements their food stamp program. So we take care of 55% of the community, four days of food a month, all for free. We got these tables, et cetera. Well, guess who uses the tables when on Tuesday, or when it's not on Tuesday in food distribution? Guess who uses those tables? The church. In that grant, you could apply that money to get this garbage collection. So we have a big dumpster. I don't know what it costs, 100 bucks a month, 50 bucks. But we could purpose the grant money to cover, and it lowered our bill like 50, 100 bucks, whatever it is, a month on our church side because we're two sisters under the house. That's totally legal, by the way, and it's super smart. Unless you think you've got all the money in the world, you can keep begging people for more money rather than work smart, which takes us to the next thing. So umbrella nonprofits... It gets us into this social space, this justice space, in a smart way, in a synergistic way, focused on a community, leveraging assets, pointing people, money, et cetera, to a single community. I don't care if it's an apartment, five block square radius, zip code, but it's got to be specific and you've got to be focused. If you're really going to get beyond rhetoric to results for the glory of God. And finally, we have to disrupt the way we think about things economically. This is to stimulate growth and create jobs, lower crime, generate taxes, and ultimately help fund a mission. The church thinks, by and large, with a mindset of scarcity, not abundance. By and large, we're just trying to pay the bills. We're just trying to get by, get the program done. No one's thinking about making money virtually in churches around the country. There are some, and it's going to grow. But by and large, in general, The church doesn't exist to make money, and no one wants to make money in the church. No one wants to leverage church assets or anything to to do for-profit work uh, in a community. And you know why? There's one reason, because Jesus overturned the tables. And Jesus overturned the tables, and the church doesn't want to get involved in for-profit work. Well, first of all, Jesus overturned those tables not because people were making fair profit. It was an injustice, just like it's an injustice when I go to the airport today and got to pay four or five bucks for a bottle of water. They got a captive audience. They jacked the price up. And so the poor are coming into three feast days from around the known world, the Jews, and they have to go to the temple and they have to buy birds and lambs and they have to buy these things. And the guys are jacking the price up four or five times what it's worth. It was injustice that Jesus was angry about. It wasn't fair profit. But because of that verse, we don't want to make money. Or when we do, we have a nice little cafe. We charge people. We say, oh, but all the profits go overseas to Africa. You got people across the street say, how about us? If the government shuts down and takes away our tax-exempt status, by the way, they could do that right now, today. Did you know that? The LGBT law that passed in 2015 of the Supreme Court, in that decision is the ability for the government to completely erase tax-exempt status for local churches. I talked to a lot of people Many, many people, and by the way, that's not, that's a sidebar to what I'm actually preaching here, but if you need a little extra incentive to get in the for-profit game from a church side and help your community, and not in a gentrification way, gentrification is bringing excellence and displacing people. Bringing excellence to the benefit of people is totally opposite. And you can do it all. You can help fund mission and bless the community economically when we think smart, entrepreneurially, and for-profit. But if the government shuts down tax-exempt status, how many churches do you think will go out of business overnight? How many pastoral jobs will be lost overnight? I talk to a lot of people. Many, many people feel that this is what's going to happen at some point. It could be next year. It could be 10 years from now. But there's a day coming in this country that already exists in other countries that churches will lose their tax-exempt status. The good news for some of us and pastors is housing allowance will probably stay. And the reason is, is because that deduction is tied to the military. So if you took away housing allowance for pastors, you'd have to take, away, take it away for the generals and the majors and the captains. And that, as long as there's a strong military, that's unlikely to happen. But those are two separate issues. But housing allowance, go, if, if that goes away, think about your tithes. How much, what percentage of your tithes and offerings go down overnight? I don't know. I don't have a number. I'm just asking you. You think it's 10%? Think it's 40%? The American church is completely unpositioned for this type of disruption. So it's not only about uh, funding mission and positioning ourselves for the future, seeing around the curve and what's coming and getting ourselves positioned economically, but it's more importantly to bless the community and to save the community, which advances the gospel and attracts more people. So there's, several, there's a number of ways to do this. Uh, just quickly, resurrect dark property. If you're a church planner in this room, want to plant, let, me, let me just encourage you, get it out of your mind. Do not go buy land and build buildings. Do not do it. 
That, that's the past, and God bless the people who have gone before us and all that. But in our time and what's around the curve, bad move. Takes tons of money that we don't have, and it takes property that is otherwise taxable off the books of the, of, of the, the cities, and they hate you. They don't like it. The Democrats, the liberal, the people that don't know Jesus do not like that. And all over a city like this, you have darker abandoned property in communities, like a Kroger, like a Kmart, right? Like a Toys R Us. These, those are all over the place. Go to those spaces. Rent those papers. Repurpose them. Don't just put your church there. Rent them. In my case, I got a 100,000 square foot Kmart. I, I bought it. I bought the building for 1.5 million, 10 acres. It was worth, uh, I bought 1.7. It was worth 1.5. I had to borrow 1.1. That was three years ago. It took Israel 40 years to go 11 days. It took our church 10 years to go two blocks from a rented Walmart to a Kmart we own. And we got this building, but the only way it works for us, because in a multi-ethnic, economically diverse church in the urban space where I'm at, the more people that join our church, it costs us money. I guess one person knows what I'm talking about. Maybe y'all can just live off your tithes and offerings. I can't. Only 65% of our budget is funded by tithes and offerings. We have seven different income streams. We have to think smart about this. By the way, church planning, get to 300, be self-sustaining in three years. I I don't want to... I don't want to like preach heresy. I don't know what you're being taught here. So let me just tell you my opinion. You're, you, that, that, that's, that is old, white, suburban. That is not the metric for planning, growing, developing church. You, you have to think multiple funding streams. That's fine if you want one or two pastors. But if you're going to have multiple staff and big buildings, if you're relying tithes and offerings, look, look, you can't do that. It takes seven to ten years to do this kind of work to go from um, survival to stability. And another five to seven to go from stability to sustainability. And sustainability is not and should not be tied to tithes and offerings. Because if we think smart, we got to help ourselves. I heard Rick Warren say six years ago, we, you can't keep begging people for money. And after this last recession, and my kid's 27, see, they gotten a little tighter on this stuff. And now our generation and the one after us is carrying the debt of the past generations. It's so upside down because all we think about is tithes and offerings. Think smart, grants, nonprofit, and think for-profit ministry. I take a Kmart. I mean, the horrible area, high violent crime, everything. We go and take this Kmart, and I rent half the building to a major fitness club called 10 Fitness. I rent 50,000 square feet for the amazing sum of just two bucks a square foot. Nothing for small business. He gives me $8,000 a month. Guess what it pays? My $7,400 mortgage. I'm not getting sixteen or 20000 a month out of them. Maybe I could, but I don't want it. You know why? Because the people in my community would be hurt. When I lower his overhead, he can charge the people just $10 a month, no contract. And in one year, it went in 2015 to 2016 to 6,000 people in a major health club in the urban community that had nothing like that. And now people from the suburbs drive in. We've created a point of destination that's such a nice club. I rent my loading dock for 1000 a month. I rent an office for 500. I still got 18,000 square feet to rent. Right now on a $16,000 note, in terms of both mortgage and renovation costs, we only pay 6,500 as a church. 9,500 is paid by rental income. We, we spend $2,400 a month on janitorial service. You create a janitorial company. You put three people to work. You leverage church assets. You hire that company out to other organization churches, and you build in your $2,400 a month so that those people clean your church for free, and three people have a job. You understand what I'm saying? You're given free coffee on a Sunday morning. It costs you $200 a month to do it. That's $2,400 a year. Maybe for you, that's nothing. For me, I'll take every penny I can get. So instead of doing that, you go to Sam's Club, you create a little cafe, you buy biscuits, you can get them for 95 cents, sell them for two bucks. That doesn't hurt the people. In fact, they show up to church on time now because they buy stuff for two bucks. And, and you go from losing $2,400 a month on free coffee to making $6,000 a year just out of that. Micro. See, I, I work in a church of four or 500 people on a Sunday morning. So I've been in mega, I've been in small, nothing. But that's the kind of mentality we don't think with. And I'm saying... To get around the curve and in the future, that's the way you think about it. And you take a building like this, why do you pay four bucks at Starbucks? Because someone owns the building. They jack the price up, it puts pressure on small business, and ultimately they pass that on to the consumer. So in that model, the owner of the building wins. Small business is a question mark whether they can get the consumer who loses to pay high prices for coffee. But if you become a benevolent owner of a building, right, or of a business, then I don't need top dollar for my space. I want to make something. I want to be smart, but I don't need top dollar. And I lower the overhead and take pressure off small business. 
which then he's able to create more jobs, hire more people, and instead of sell, selling coffee for four bucks, he can sell it for 275 and still make all his profit margin because I've lowered the overhead. You guys with me? Smart business, but we don't think like that. We should, and that's what it means to be disruptive. But with all that said, what is God doing? I truly believe, as my friend Chris Rice said in a book, More Than Equals, back in 1999, I believe and I've become convinced that God is not very interested in using the church to heal racial tensions, the race problem in our country, but rather in our day, in our lifetime, God will use race to heal the church. And ultimately, that's why I'm so excited to be here. You have such a powerful network, such a great work, such a great opportunity, as Chad said, with the increasing diversity of this city. The field is ripe unto harvest, as it were, but we have to do business entirely different in our day and age to advance a credible gospel in an increasingly diverse and cynical society. Chad?